0: Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joel Kraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM, and AM 930. It is great to be with you another evening, Thursday evening, reflecting into the richness of our faith. And uh, it is Thursday, so we are talking the stuff of theology of the body. If you are a faithful listener out there, you know that we did a 12-part series, which essentially was extended to a 13-part series on Theology of the Body, where we laid the foundation. And because of your response out there, you wanted to hear more of the stuff of Theology of the Body. So we have picked up the work titled The Love That Satisfies by Christopher West. And what he does in this book is he takes the first half of Benedict XVI's encyclical on God is Love— where he examines the relationship between eros and agape. Eros defined as that love shared between man and woman, and agape as that sacrificial love exemplified on the cross. And he reflects with it. He engages the first half of that encyclical. That is, Christopher West engages the first half of that encyclical. And uh, yeah, so his reflections are very much about Theology of the Body, focusing in on uh, Benedict XVI's commentary. So, It's really nice for us here because we have the opportunity to uh, be able to see the continuity that exists between John Paul II and Benedict XVI. uh, So yeah, this is going to be an exciting study. We are in our third week here. Um, Chris Seibert joined me for the first two weeks. He was unavailable this week, so I am flying solo this week. If you do have any questions out there, please do not hesitate to email me at jholljmj at yahoo.com, or you can... uh, get me by way of my website, jeholcraft.org. Just hit the contact button there and send your email on its way, and I will get it and gladly respond to you. Uh, so, with that, what I thought we could do is just jump into uh, chapter one here. We're working through this initial chapter, through the initial stage of this work. And in this opening chapter, he's taking up some of the key opening points from Benedict's Deus Caritas S And what I'd like to do this evening is start with uh, his second point that he reflects upon from Pope Benedict XVI, and it is this. St. John offers a kind of summary of the Christian life. We have come to know and to believe in the love God has for us. Uh, so what is Benedict talking about there? What are the kinds of questions we need to ask? Well, again, asking questions is necessary. What is the nature of the love God has for us. How are we uh, to think of it? You know, the scriptures use many images to help us understand God's love for humanity, huh? We see throughout old and new, father and son, king and subjects, shepherd and sheep, vine and branches, head and body. You know, Jesus even compares his love to that of a protective mother hen who wants to gather her chicks in the safety of her wings. All of these images are helpful. But the Bible uses another image far more than these to describe God's love for humanity. An image that illuminates the mystery of God's love in a way that simply no other image can. And it is the image favored by the greater saints and mystics of the church. It is not only an image or a metaphor, we can say it is a sacrament. That means this image truly communicates makes visible and real to us the mystery of God's love that it symbolizes. We, of course, are speaking of the spousal image, the union of the bridegroom and the bride. Let us consider here, as Christopher West does, and again, I'm drawing from Christopher West primarily with some uh, personal reflections, uh, but I am primarily drawing from the love that satisfies. Uh, Christopher West makes note, you know, the Bible begins in Genesis with the marriage of the first man and woman, and it ends in the book of Revelation with another marriage, the marriage of Christ and the church. The first human words recorded in the Bible are the words of a bridegroom's wonder and excitement as he beholds the unveiled beauty of his bride. Genesis 2.23, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. The final human words recorded in the Bible are the words of the bride's intense rejoicing at the coming of the bridegroom, Revelation twenty two seventeen, the Spirit and the bride say, Come. So the whole story of salvation history, the whole of biblical revelation, is contained between the love initiated by the bridegroom and the response of the bride. And so we can properly say, as Christopher West does, in these nuptial bookends. We have a key for interpreting all that lies between, huh? You know, God is the author of salvation history. And as any good author would do, he comes full circle. The Bible contains 73 books, 73 books. The first being Genesis, the last, of course, being Revelation. And so if we want to get a clue into how to read sacred scripture, we look at where he started and how he ends. And out from that, we can begin to appreciate what's going on here. And as Christopher West notes, from Genesis 2.23 to Revelation 22.17, indeed, we have the key that unlocks the mystery to what the Bible is about. You know, we say Old Testament and New Testament. What do we mean to say when we use that language? What does the word testament mean? Well, again, I've talked about this before. The word testament translates covenant. We could say old covenant, new covenant. Well, what does covenant mean? Covenant in Latin, uh, convenire means compact agreement, in exchange of things, right? Well, God elevates this understanding of covenant and he gives it a personal identity because with God's covenant, it is just not an exchange of things. This is yours and this is mine. It is an exchange of persons. I am yours and you are mine. So in the old covenant, And the new covenant, we have the bridegroom to the bride, huh? Come and enter into this marriage feast. So through this lens, we learn that God's eternal plan is to what? Marry us to live with us in communion, in his eternal exchange of love. Chris and I talked about this last week, right? When you talk about the Trinity, you are talking about this perfect eternal exchange of love. Love given, love received, love shared. And if we take the analogy further, we see that through this loving union, God wants to all but impregnate the bride with eternal life. That is to say, he wants us lovingly to conceive his life within us and bear it forth. Now, for maybe some of us, this sounds a bit shocking, and to some extent, as Christopher West notes, even scandalous. But the idea of the heavenly bridegroom giving life to the bride lies at the very heart of our Christian faith. And this idea of becoming pregnant, if you will, with divine life is not merely a metaphor. Representing all of us, a woman once opened herself so profoundly to God's love that she literally, and of course, virginally conceived divine life in her womb. And as the Catechism of the Catholic Church makes note, in this way, Mary perfectly fulfills the spousal character of the human vocation in relation to God. In Mary, the bride said yes to the eternal bridegroom's proposal. Remember Revelation twenty-two seventeen. 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. But there's more, huh? God wanted this eternal marital plan to be so plain, so obvious to us, that he impressed an image of it in our very being by creating us male and female. And calling us to become one flesh. St. Paul, Ephesians 5, verses 31 to 32, a great mystery, he says, that points to Christ's union with the church. So our bodies, we can say, as we noted last week, then are not only biological, but at the same time they are theological. Yes, we can say our bodies are a study of God and his plan of love for the universe. In our opening week, way back when when I was with Ivan, we talked about the meaning of theology of the body. Well, there it is, okay? Our bodies are biological and theological. Why? Because God impressed an image of his very life into our maleness and femaleness. And this is what we are made to see as a theology of the body. As male and female, our bodies reveal the mystery of life-giving love and union that has been hidden in God from eternity. In other words, as Benedict points out in his work Deus Caritas Est, eros, that human erotic love, is again meant to express agape, divine sacrificial love. Now, I can hear the question out there, is God sexual then? No, we are made in God's image, not he in ours. God's mystery remains infinitely beyond the image of spousal love and union. At the same time, however, as John Paul II once observed, there is no other human reality which corresponds more, humanly speaking, to that divine mystery. Amen. So what does this all mean for us? Well, Benedict offers for us, I believe, maybe his most beautiful words from Deus Caritas S. when he says, being Christian is not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty idea, but the encounter with a person which gives life a new horizon and a decisive direction. So the reduction of of Christianity to a list of rules for living, to a moral code, I've always felt, and Christopher West makes note of this, is a terrible and indeed tragic impoverishment of the Christian mystery. Obviously, following Christ places significant moral demands on us, but morality is not what Christianity is. Living a moral life is a fruit Of having encountered the person of Christ. We say yes to Christ because of our encounter with him, right? And we must be always mindful that behind every no there is an immeasurable greater yes. There is always a gap between the person we are and the person we ought to be. And this is a joy for us. The joy of discovery is always everywhere and anywhere how we can imitate Christ more in our life. I was just talking about being impregnated with the life of God. What is this? Well, it is grace, right? We are to see that each and every moment, literally and figuratively, is pregnant with eternal significance. And by that I mean, each and every moment is a moment that is intended to be life-giving, okay? So, we ought to stop with this idea that morality is a bad thing. Is a negative thing, you know. In the Ten Commandments, we have the "Thou shall not." God is this punitive policeman, as we again talked about last week. No, He's not that. He is a loving Father, and out from that love, He is letting us know to say yes. As a son of God, is worth rejoicing. Now, as we briefly discussed last week, the story of the woman caught in adultery is a good example of what Benedict the Sixteenth is talking about when he speaks to this encounter leading to a new horizon and decisive direction. What do I mean? Well, illicit sex can offer a quick fix of excitement, a sudden rush of emotion and physical release. But virtually everyone who is engaged in illicit sex can attest to that empty pit in the stomach that follows. The woman caught in the act of adultery when looking for love, intimacy, and affirmation from another, imagining perhaps that this time she would find what she was looking for. But as always, the counterfeit never satisfies. It was in the midst of this feeling of emptiness and shame that she meets Christ. The angry crowd was anxious to stone her. Christ said, Whoever was without sin could cast the first stone. According to his own words, jesus could have thrown a stone but jesus came not to condemn he came to save and he says to the woman caught in adultery sin no more go sin no more and what i've always found most fascinating about this particular encounter is that it is the first sin that god forgives the first sin that jesus forgives. So sexual sin, then, is the first sin that Jesus forgives. I think Jesus knows well of the concupiscent appetite. He knows well of our inclination to sin, especially in the context of our sexuality. So, as it relates to the woman caught in adultery, the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Here is the moment of encounter with Christ that, as Benedict says, gives a new horizon and a decisive direction. Now, as Christopher West does, you know, reading into the story a bit, can we not imagine that in this face-to-face meeting with perfect love, the woman found what she had been looking for in her previous sexual misadventures? Why was Christ so compassionate with sexual sinners, especially women? Could it be because he knew they were actually looking for him, the true bridegroom, but they had been deceived by counterfeit loves. Sexual union, even when it is a beautiful expression of married love, and all the more so when it is not, can never satisfy the deepest ache of the human being for love and union. This in so many ways is what lies at the heart of why John Paul II took up theology of the body. Huh? The best that that sexual union can provide is a sacramental foreshadowing of the love that does satisfy, the love that comes only through Christ. So having been saved from the counterfeit by the true bridegroom, do you think when Jesus said, go and sin no more, that this woman who had been caught in adultery turned and grumbled, who are you to tell me what to do with my body? I mean, have we heard that before? Or do you think, having tasted the love that satisfies, she received a new horizon and a decisive direction? Brothers and sisters in Christ, how important is it that we draw back and we begin to see the wonder and the beauty of theology of the body, a biblical exposition, if you will, of better understanding that deepest image of the bridegroom and the bride. Mm. This new horizon, what is it? Is it not that penetrating realization that genuine love does in fact exist? That I need not stifle my yearnings for love that is lasting and real, nor settle for the counterfeits endlessly pervaded by, by what I've just come to call our pornoculture? This decisive direction essentially is to follow Christ wherever. He leads us. Inevitably, Christ's way will take us to Calvary. And we must understand this. The way of the cross is the way we are to follow. While it might be painful, while there might be many headaches, it is worth the struggle in grace. Because what do we find on the other side? the glory of the resurrection, the glory of tasting truly what it means to be human, what it means to love. In turn, we experience the joy of sharing that love with others. Benedict XVI, in his opening paragraph, offers for us another key line that Christopher West reflects upon that I believe to be very important to how we are made to see that love that satisfies. And his line is this, love is now no longer a mere command. It is the response to the gift of love with which God draws near to us. So if religion is man's search for God, Christianity is God's search for man. The church fathers offer up one beautiful reflection after another with this, the mystics, God searching for man. In this is love, Not that we loved God, but that he loved us, as 1 John 4.10 says. God always takes the initiative in the creator-creature relationship because as creator, he is father, and as creature, we are son. This is why, in the analogy of the bridegroom and the bride, God is always the bridegroom. The bridegroom gives the seed, and the bride opens to receive it. The bridegroom fathers new life. And the bride mothers it, conceiving it within herself, bearing it forth and nurturing it. Oh, this is such a rich image for our mystics. But we can begin to appreciate how the image, the metaphor of the bridegroom and the bride helps us to better understand our vocation in light of who we are as male and female. And again, this is not only biology. This is theology, theology of the body. Our bodies, in the intimacy of marital union, are created to point us to the life-giving union of Christ and the Church. Again, we have reflected much upon this image that comes to us from Ephesians 5 verses 31 to 32. So when we encounter divine love, when we experience it and take it into ourselves, Christopher West says that we are filled with new life, divine life. This divine life empowers us not only to follow the rules, but to fulfill God's love out of the overflow of love within us. Last week we were talking about joy and how when we are in a relationship with God, when we are living in God's love, joy just spills out of us it is who we are, it is existential. Why? Because joy is the grace that God gives to us when we are living in that union with God. So, for all of this, what does this mean? Well, among other things, that holiness is not first a matter of doing anything, but of letting it be done unto us. Hmm. What did Mary say? I was just talking about grace. Joy, how these two words belong to each other. Mary says, What? Let it be to me. Let it be to me. Holiness is, Let it be to me. Holiness is the fruitfulness of God's initiative in us and out from that initiative, our response. Holiness, as the Catechism points out, is measured according to the great mystery in which the bride responds with the gift of love to the gift of the bridegroom. Why do we love to see marriage proposals and movies and those home video television shows? Love offered and received warms the heart for it is an image of the holiness we all long for. Holiness in its root means to be set apart. There is that day that for those of us who have been married, have all shared in. That day that has been set apart from every other day. That day where we said yes to our spouses. Huh? Now, I'm not going to say that uh, this is the best day. I've always thought it to be funny that uh, during wedding ceremonies, the priest might say, or the the pastor might say, uh, this is the best day of your life. Well, if this is the best day of your life, we can say, what, all downhill from here, huh? I mean, I've never really understood that. Because in many ways, while that day is set apart, that day, in so many ways, points to the agape that we've been talking about, the divine sacrificial love that we are called to share in. Now, this next point here that Christopher West reflects upon from Deus Caritas Est, continues to look at uh, the way in which we are called to see uh, love as something that we are to give away. And these are the words of Benedict Sixteenth. I wish in my first encyclical to speak of the love which God lavishes upon us and which we in turn must share with others. You have heard it said that you cannot give what you do not have. Well, I'm here to tell you that again. You have heard me say on numerous occasions that in so many ways, the whole Christian structure of faith is about being in God for other. New identity, new goal. To come to know God so as to come to make Him known. This is what the old law and the new points to, right? The old law, the Ten Commandments. The first three commandments are about loving God. And the next seven is about how we our call to love neighbor and what we do or don't do. If you look at the Beatitudes, what do you see? Be poor in God. Every other Beatitude is based upon that first Beatitude because that first Beatitude highlights that need to long for God the same way our lungs long for air. So what rests at the heart of all of this is to better understand that we have been given a gift so as to be able to to enter into the task. We cannot share God's love with others if we haven't first allowed God to lavish his love upon us. God is a gentleman. He does not impose his love on us. He does not coerce and browbeat. He awaits our freely given yes before he floods our hearts with his love. Alas then, giving that yes to God, is far more difficult than one might imagine. I mean, we have been trained from a very young age to hide our hearts, to shut down. We have all been wounded, jaded by this selfish world that we live in. And so we're afraid, I think, to expose our hearts. We're afraid of being, quote-unquote, naked, as Christopher West says, of being ourselves before others and even before God. We're afraid that God really isn't love. Be not afraid, John Paul II said. Coraggio, cast into the deep. Do not fear. Cast out your fear. Christ's whole life is a testimony to the fact that God is love. In effect, his life says to us what? You don't believe God loves you? I will traverse the skies to show you how much God loves you. I will bleed myself dry to show you how much God loves you. I have not come to punish or condemn you, but to reward you with eternal life. It's okay, he says to us. You are safe. Believe. You can remove the fig leaves in my presence. Be not afraid. And always remember that what I give to you, you are called to share with others. And always mindful my dear friends, that we should never allow other people's weaknesses to dictate how we are called to love. Because if we live in love, then we overcome that and we are better for it. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning is now and ever shall be world without end. Amen. And God bless you.